Our scripture reading from the Old Testament is from Deuteronomy chapter 1, and then we're going to look at uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3. Deuteronomy 1.9. At that time I said to you, I'm not able to bear you by myself. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, make you a thousand times as many as you are, and bless you as he promised you. How can I bear by myself the weight and the burden of you and your strife? Choose your tri- for your tribes wise, understanding, and experienced men, and I will appoint them as your heads. And you answered me. The thing that you have spoken is good for us to do. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, set them as heads over you, commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, commanders of fifties, commanders of ten, and officers throughout your tribes. Then I charged your judges at that time, hear the cases between your brothers, and judge righteously between a man and his brother or alien who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. In the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me, and I will hear it. And I commanded you at that time all the things that you should do. And then from 1 Timothy 3.1, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil." Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Grass withers, the flower of the grass falls to the ground, but the word of our Lord abides forever and ever. It's for our comfort, for our encouragement, for our direction in every area of life. We're looking at these passages in relationship to our election of elders and deacons today, and 
title of the sermon, Chosen to Serve. And officers in the church represent the great and holy and awesome God that reveals himself in the scripture. And so this great God requires men who will want to come and to serve him in holiness and in reverence and in truth in all of their doings as they represent him. But then in the second place, they also are elected, uh, chosen by the congregation, as you have chosen the various men that will be presented to you today uh, for final election. And these are people that you have confidence and trust in. They've demonstrated in their lives uh, the kind of character that represents them uh, before God. And, and you found in, in them things that you see that uh, correspond to what we find in the scripture. And so these people are being put forward uh, to represent you. And so it's this combination, these men that are officers, they serve God and then they serve the people of God at the same time. Now in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in an old section downtown, there's a section called Rittenauer Square. And in that square, there is a statue there of Phillips Brooks, an Episcopalian pastor quite a large uh, statue. If you have any interest in it, you can just Google it online. It'll come right up, and uh, you can read about that. But this statue, Phillips Brooks, is facing out from the church towards the congregation and, as it were, the city. And behind Phillips Brooks, there is an even larger, more imposing statue that's to serve as a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Christ statue has his right hand extended and his arm and hand are now resting upon the right shoulder of Phillips Brooks. And what the artist is conveying is that, that Phillips Brooks stands in this position. He is Jesus's man for this church. He is Jesus's man for this city. And Phillips Brooks was a man who was a, a mighty Christian pastor. And he was much loved in the city of Philadelphia and in that church. So loved was he by the children of the, the Christian church school that they had that those children took up a large contribution in order to pay the expenses for Phillips Brooks to sail uh, to the Holy Lands and to become more familiar with the land that he preached about week by week. But while he was there, because of his great love for the children of the church, he had to do something that corresponded to that. And so he penned a, what we would call a Christmas song. Christmas song, more than likely, we'll send be, or sing before this season's uh, over. He penned the Christmas song, O Little Child of Bethlehem. It was a love relationship between Phillips Brooks and the people, and the people and Phillips Brooks. He allowed himself to be loved, and he loved them generously. And so when we look at this, that's what we're, we're seeing here. We want people that are our officers who love God and love his people and seek to lead them in love. Now, as we look at this great God, we've seen this definition that comes, and it's only a partial one. There's another paragraph that's equally as long, this paragraph one from the Confession of Faith that describes about who God is. But in an interesting occasion uh, during the Westminster Assembly, they were struggling how to make this reduce down in size so that it would be something that was memorable. And supposedly the youngest man in the Westminster Assembly in the 1650s was asked to 
to offer a prayer to God that uh, uh, they might be able to come up with an adequate definition. And this young man uh, named Gillespie got up and prayed, and he said, O oh God, thou who art a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, in your being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, give us wisdom this day. Boy, no sooner said amen, and people were writing it down. And they says, that's what we want. Came from the youngest man in the assembly. That's our God. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, and in his being. Today we want to just consider this word wisdom. This word wisdom qualifies every other word of that definition as every other word in that definition qualifies the word wisdom. But when we talk about this wisdom, we're talking about the God of wisdom that can be seen and recognized by us each and every day in this creation in which we live. This creation in which we know that all things from the scriptures were created by God and for God's own glory. That's what the scriptures teach us about this world. This world that was put together in wisdom, this world that represents the wise ordering of our God. Now, the unfortunate thing that we're dealing with in the contemporary culture of our day is they don't accept that. In their humanistic views and in their uh, evolutionary views, they've come to understand that this world is meaningless and that the things that happen in this world are merely time that goes on and chance occurrences that occur. And these time and chance occurrences as they blend together in the lives of you and me and others basically lead us to a life of meaninglessness. That there is no meaning in anything, there's no meaning in any event, there's no meaning in really in who we are and what we're doing on a day-to-day -day basis. Life is just random. Well, we should be thankful that we have a man or denomination like Tim Keller, and Tim Keller has just written a new book. I would recommend it to you with the highest degree of uh, recommendation, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. It's a new book. I just finished reading it. Uh, it it's, it's an excellent piece, but repeatedly in this book, Tim Keller talks about God. God is the God of all creation. God who created all things in his wisdom, in the God that oversees, superintends everything that comes to pass according to his wise purposes in counsel, and these things come into our lives. So that, that all things manifest God's wisdom, God's purpose, and God's love for you and me. The Apostle Paul takes all of this definition that we see in the Old Testament, really, if you were to take this definition that we read uh, from the Confession of Faith, and you just put the words Jesus Christ at the beginning of that and began to speak, these things would define who Jesus is. But when Jesus is incarnate and comes into the world, he brings his face into our lives so that we can see the greatness of this God in a way that is absolutely and personally comprehensible to each and every one of us who put our faith in Christ. To see Christ is to see the Father. To see Jesus and to know Jesus is to know God. And so this one, uh, Paul says in reference to Jesus, 
It's by him all things were created. It's through him all things were created. And it's for him that all things are created. And we know that this Jesus is ruling and reigning in heaven and ruling and reigning in our lives and that he loves us and cares for us. Great hymn, we could sing it from time to time, Does Jesus Care? The song goes, Does Jesus Care? I know he cares. His heart is touched with our grief. Think the words actually with my grief. And we need to know that. This God, the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is full of wisdom, and he is bringing his wisdom and love and power to bear in each one of our lives throughout this, in each and every day. Every day, each one of us experiences the wisdom of God and creation. You know, you don't think about it, but we live by faith in the wisdom of God, the God of all creation. Uh, you know, we like it cold when it's hot. We like it warm when it's cold. And there is a gas liquid that we call refrigerant. It's got various different names. Basically, it all works the same. It's put into some kind of a compressed closed system, and that liquid runs through that system. What? How does that, every time it gets to a certain point, change from a liquid to a gas? Well, it's because this is a, a creation of orderliness. This is a creation in which you and I can, through trial and error, through experimentation, understand how things actually work. Things aren't random. Things aren't just happening. Things occur according to a design and a plan. And as our life goes on and science perfects itself in various endeavors, we find that we discover more and more, not the randomness of things, but the orderliness of things that stands behind all of creation that demonstrates the wisdom of our great God. You know, we've got scientists in the home. They take some various elements and they put them in a bowl. They mix them together. I mean, a little of this and a little of that. It's stirred up in a certain way. It's put in the pan or put in this. It's stuck in an oven at a certain temperature. It's there for a certain amount of time and out comes a carrot cake. Out comes a pumpkin pie. And if I'm not mistaken, when I come home today, out's going to come an apple pie. It's all good. I like to see those kinds of experiments. But they demonstrate that a wise person in an all-orderly world can take and put these things together and good things are going to result. You know, beyond all these things, though, Paul conveys God's wisdom not merely to all the creation but to his chosen people. And so when we think about God's creation as it reflects itself on us as the people of God, we're told that all things work together for good to those who are called of God, to those who are called according to his purpose. All things work together to good. And, and we know that we go through some very awful things in this world that, that test our understanding in, in, in trust and faith in the wisdom of God and the wisdom of Gen Jesus Christ. But God's wisdom, in fact, is ordering our general lives. God's wisdom is, in fact, in control of the extraordinary things that occur from time to time in our lives. 
in God's wisdom is involved in perfect ways in all the pains and suffering that come into our lives. First church was in South Alabama, Florida. It was right on the Florida-Alabama line there. And in that church was a man named Ed. Ed lost his first wife to a very agonizing long-term cancer where he kept his wife in their home and had caregivers come in there and take care of her until she passed away, leaving him with their two sons. Now, there was Edward and there was John. In just one house and a street away from where they lived, there was a large, rambling, empty house that the children from the neighborhood had been playing in for years. And what do you think they played in there? Good guy, bad guy. And what did they play with? With guns. And one of them had a twenty-two rifle. And he aimed it at Ed's son's chest. Not knowing there was a round in it, he pulled the trigger. It went right into his heart and lodged there. Ed, a banker, was called. He came from the bank. He came to his son's side. He scoops his son, his namesake, up. And his son says... It's okay, Dad's here. And he dies in Ed's arms. Now, after the day was over, and Ed's back at the house, Ed goes to the pantry and pulls out a fifth of whiskey and a water glass and poured it full. Then he said he put his hand on the glass, he looked at his hand, he looked at the glass, he pushed them all away, in a few minutes he got up, He took the glass and the fifth, he went to the sink and poured them both in there, and to my knowledge, Ed never drank another drop of alcohol of any kind the rest of his life. Ed had been raised in that Presbyterian church. Ed had gone to Macaulay School for Boys, where at that time, over the arch at Macaulay, it said these words, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So for a number of years he saw that. And then Ed went up to Davidson College and he finished at Davidson, a Presbyterian school. Ed had come to know the Lord. Ed had come to love Jesus. Ed had come to trust Jesus. Ed had seen good times and now there were awful things that were happening in his life and he had to learn to trust that this great God of wisdom was working in a wise way in these events that were taking place in his life. As I came to the town, he was retiring from owning owning this little bank, and he asked me to give a little devotion for the retirement banquet, and I did, and when it was all over, he got up and he began to make his remarks to the the people that were friends of the bank and... uh, his employees. And so Ed got up, the same man, and he said, I have lived a doubly blessed life. He paused. He says, most men are lucky in life if they have one good dog and one good wife. He says, I've had two good dogs and two good wives. As soon as he'd finished saying that, His wife, with a northern Alabama drawl, says, Oh, shucks, Ed, you could have put the wives first. (laughs) This man 
was loved. This man loved people. A great God had worked great things to make this man all that he was. A life of faith, a life of trust, yes, a hard life. The next funeral Ed attended was his own. He couldn't go. Think every Sunday that this man came to church and sat in the back. What do you think he saw when he looked at the front of that church? Don't you know he saw his wife's casket? Don't you know he saw his son's casket? You couldn't keep him from being there, though. This God was building a great life, and he knew it. Ed loved Jesus. The people loved Ed. You know, when we talk about the members of our church, the members of the Church of Jesus Christ, what do officers need to remember? What do you as leaders in a church need to remember and think about at all times when you look at the various people, whether they are just baptized or whether they're just about ready to graduate out of this world? What is it that you need to think about when you think about them? I think the key and most important thing that you can think about a church member as an officer is this. Here is somebody who is beloved by the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what a church member is. Here is someone for whom Christ died. That's what a church member is. And as we think about our membership, that's the way we should think about them. As you think about your fellow members, that's the way you should think about them. This is somebody that Jesus loves. This is somebody for whom Jesus died. That'll be a great act of wisdom on all of our parts. You know, members take on many forms. There are recent converts, and they come into our church life and sometimes, especially if they're converted in somewhat near adulthood or late adulthood, the, the life of a recent convert can be a downright mess. There is so much that's gone on during their unconverted years. But then you've got people that are in the church that are, are growing disciples. And their lives is beginning to take on, as it were, uh, a level of Christ-likeness as they grow. Then you have mature members in the church, and their lives begin to reflect the word and the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ in almost everything they think and say and do. And then you've got the senior members that are disciples in the church. In reality, these people's lives reflect to a great extent the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. It can actually be seen in the way they conduct themselves day in and day out. And a healthy church always has a combination of these people around. Always a healthy respect for the new convert. And the new convert always a healthy respect for those people that represent a glorious, long life of walking in the Lord. You know, again, any of these people, whether they're recent converts or mature disciples, when they come into their church on any given Sunday, they can be like my friend Ed having lives that have experienced deep grief and pain, and they're there. 
and you can't see it, but it's a part of who they are. It's a part of the way they think. It's the part of the way they sing. It's a part of everything they are. And they bring that when they come into worship. And then you have some people who have deep wounds in their lives, child abuse or addiction issues that have, that have but they're believers, they're beloved of Christ, and they're here, and they're needing to be loved. You've got people who are, lives are in financial ruins. You have those who have suffered even from the things that have happened to them in their own church. It happens. We don't want it to happen, but it does happen. And they come, and they come as the beloved of the Lord. We need to think of them in that way. There are people who come that have brought much grief to themselves and others, but they're beloved of the Lord. Part of the body, loved equally and greatly by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. You know, it says at Antioch that they were first called Christians, and of the first Christians, what did it say of them? My, how they loved one another. This is the essence of what it means to be a member of the church. This is what it means for us to think about one another, and especially it's the way that officers should think about members. But what about church officers? They're chosen by you. We see that in Deuteronomy. We see it in the New Testament. What's the number one thing that we would want to see in you, the officers of the church, as you conduct yourselves in the day-to-day -day affairs of our lives? And the key thing that we would want to see is that you're filled with the Holy Spirit. If you go back to Numbers 11, it says God took the spirit that was on Moses and put it on the 70 people that had been chosen to be the officers. What do we see in Acts chapter 6? That these people, one of the key qualifications, that they had to be filled with the Holy Spirit. What do we see about that man Stephen? That he was filled with the Holy Spirit. What do we see in these qualifications? These are nothing but the fruits of the Spirit itemized to be a part of the definition of what it means to be a church officer in order to properly lead and love the people of God. It's true for the church officer. It's true for the pastors. You know, the Son of Man did not come to be served. Mark 10.45 tells us the Son of Man came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Spurgeon, in the 1800s, knew this. Spurgeon said he got up on a Monday morning, he began to walk around London, he began to study, and you know what he said he was doing all week long? He was gathering gospel bullets, and he would find gospel bullets, and he would load his gospel gun. Then he said that what he would do on Sunday he would bring his gospel gun loaded with gospel bullets and he would come into the pulpit and then he would shoot the members of the congregation with his gospel gun and try to plug them with his gospel bullets. And he said, you know, there are many times when I'd empty the gun and it didn't seem like there was any effect. He says, well, then what I would do, he says, I would put myself in the barrel and I would shoot myself at the people in order that they might understand how much God loves them. This is what we need. 
You know, week after week, we have a man named Chip Miller that gets into this pulpit, and you know that he has loaded his gospel gun with gospel bullets, and you know he's aiming at our hearts, and we have a lot to be thankful for, but we need to think like that. The church I started at Laco County, a couple came, Rush, Ellen, both of them PhDs, both of them school principals. He's black, she's white. Do you know that they didn't fit? They didn't fit in her family, didn't fit in her family. And when they came into that church by invitation, they had a lot of baggage and a lot of reservations. But that church loved Russian Ellen, and they joined that church. You know, they joined the church, and then after joining the church, they came to understand that they really weren't believers. So then they came to faith in that church. They came to faith as a result of a small group. So they began to host a small group in their home. And in the hosting of that small group in their home, you can bet what happened. Many people just like them who had come to the church, joined the church, who weren't Christians, became Christians in the small group that was in their home. Tremendous nurturers in life. People that had experienced a great deal of pain, but had experienced an even greater degree of the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. They had experienced that. In what they had and what they possessed, they intended to share and see it be transformational in the lives of others. You know, when the time came to elect deacons after a few years, it wasn't hard for that congregation to put Rush's name forward, and he became a deacon. After a few years of serving as a deacon, his name was put forward to be an elder, and he's an elder. You go to our Presbytery meetings, almost every time we have a Presbytery meeting, this man is one of the representatives of that church at our Presbytery meeting. This family is loved, and this family loves people. How much trouble do you think these people in that church find following that man's leadership? This man wouldn't do anything to harm any of them. All he wants to do is see the, the work of Christ advance in their life like it was advanced in he and his wife's life, and he wants to see the people of that community that don't know the Lord come to know the Lord. Church officers. We've seen who they are. We've given them, as it were, our nomination. They have been trained, and now we're here to elect them to serve our needs. Moses said, I had to bear with your grief. Be careful. Don't bring too much grief to them. But you will, in some way, shape, or form. And it'll all turn into love, because all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to our pur his purpose. Well, let's pray. Father, may we come to a point in time now in our service where we recognize that you are at work in our church, growing it, maturing it, perfecting it, extending it. And we ask you to bless our church, its pastor, his family, our officers and their families, and our members, and the people that are the alien that comes in from outside. May we even go to the alien and bring them in. That would be our prayer that your house would be full, 
that your name would be glorified, that people would not be trapped in the sense of meaninglessness, but rather filled with the sense of your wisdom and bring you honor and glory and praise. We pray in Christ's name with thanksgiving. Amen. Let's stand for the benediction.